we read this Shabbat. The Parsha Kitisa, it begins with uh, the, uh, the commandment to count, which we read in Shekalim. But the, the, the bulk of the Parasha of Kitisa is uh, based on or is telling the story of the Egel Hazahab, the golden calf. <coughs> the golden calf story is one, <coughs> sorry, is one many of us know, but I think when we look at it inside, <coughs> sorry, when we look at it inside, it's, uh, it's a lot different than the story we may have, uh, we may have heard as a story or the story that we, we get from the movies, you know, Charlton Heston coming down from the mountain and seeing the people dancing around the calf and throwing the, uh, the tablets and the ground opening up and, uh, and uh, <laughs> not exactly the way it happened. <clears throat> so for a better idea, we're going to look inside the, the Humash and we're going to look primarily at Rashi. We're going to come to one specific uh, point that we're going to try to understand uh, this evening. So we begin the story of the golden calf. The nation sees that Moshe is delayed. And they, 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 they gather around They tell him, Make for us a God. It's crazy. 40 days after they left Har Sinai, they need a new God. Who will go in front of us? Moses, the man, who was—he's uh, specifically a man. You know, how could he be alive after all of this time on uh, all of this time on uh, on Har Sinai? He uh, <coughs> who took us out of Egypt. We don't know what happens to him. So the 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 rabbis tell us. Uh, Rashi tells us that. Uh, they saw an image of Moshe in a coffin. And it seems the Satan was trying playing tricks on them. I don't know why he's permitted to play such tricks on them. And, uh, and they're afraid that Moshe is dead. But the, the, the question is, if Moshe is dead, then who should the natural leader be? Before Moshe showed up a few months ago or a year ago, before Moshe showed up a few months ago, who was the the leader? Aharon. So wouldn't Aharon be permitted to lead them now? He's a Navi, he could take over. Why do they need this new God to lead them? Now most of the Chachamim say Ramban, Rambam, Ibn Ezra, Tosfot, they never meant for this statue to be Avodazara. They never meant it as a alternative worshipping. They meant to have a mediator. It was built in the image of what they perceived the Malachim to be. It says when they crossed the sea, they looked up, they saw the Malachim, they saw the leg of the Malach was like a, like a calf. And this was supposed to represent the Malachim, specifically Gabriel. <clears throat> so that, that was their intent. But there's still something they shouldn't be doing. So Aaron tells them, so he has a delay tactic. He says, if you want me to make you this idol, what you have to do is you have to go home to your wives and children and tell your wives and children to take their jewelry and give it to you to make this calf. Figuring they're going to go home and the wives are going to say, uh, nothing doing. We're not giving you the jewelry. 
And <clears throat> but it seems that the, the men didn't wait because they had their own jewelry. So the men took off their own earrings and they handed all of this jewelry over to Aaron. And they, he took it from their hands. Some of the Mephashim say it was a bad that he took it from their hands because he gave it some sort of an energy with his own hands. And he goes ahead and he's going to make this, this uh, solid uh, calf of gold. <clears throat> and the people say, These are your gods, Israel, who took you out of Egypt. So the Midrash tries to explain what happened. He took the jewelry, he threw it in a fire. All of a sudden a form comes out. Uh, there were two magicians there. They took a special plaque. If we remember when, when uh, Yosef was in Egypt, Joseph was in Egypt, he made the people promise that when they leave Egypt, they would take his body with him. To try to prevent that from happening, the Egyptians buried him in a copper coffin at the bottom of the uh, Nile. Moshe Rabbeinu, who went to go get Moshe's, Yosef's coffin, put a plaque. One side had Hashem's name. The other side said, Aleshor, rise, rise ox, because Yosef is known as the ox. And, uh, and he threw it in, and this, this plaque miraculously lifted up the coffin of Joseph. These magicians took this plaque, threw it in with the gold, and out of it jumped up a golden calf. And it started singing and dancing and eating grass. Sort of like, you know, Pinocchio came to life. So it's hard to believe. Forty days after Har Sinai, they just got out of Egypt. Everyone knows Hashem is the one who took us out of Egypt. So how could they say at this point, this is the gods, these are the gods who took us out of Egypt. And he builds an altar in front of him. And Haron called out, A holiday to Hashem tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be a festival to Hashem. So what was Haron hoping? Haron saw that Satan is at work, that this thing is beyond his control. And he has to try to come up with a plan, a way to delay things in order to see if there's a way to wait for Moshe to, re to return because for sure Moshe is going to be back tomorrow. It says that Aaron saw many things. He saw Hur, his nephew. Hur was the son of Miriam. He was, the, he was a prophet. He was the assistant to Moshe. We remember when during the war, Hur held up one arm while Aaron held up the other arm against Amalek. And it says there, <clears throat> he saw and he understood what they did to him. So there's a different way of reading it. He saw... So it says, He saw, He saw, He understood, From the slaughtered one in front of him. So if you read the Pasuk and you change the voweling, it seems to say that he saw what they did to Hor in front of him, that they slaughtered Hor in front of him. He saw another thing also. Why did he volunteer to build the Mizbeach? He said, if I tell them and leave it to them, each one of them is going to bring pebbles or stones and they're going to build the Mizbeach in a few minutes. If I build it, I can take all night to do it, waste some time, 
and hopefully Moshe will be back. And he says, Chag Hashem, Chag to God. He's hoping that by the time he finishes, the people will come to their senses and they're going to celebrate with a Chag to Hashem when Moshe comes back with the Luchot. So this is what happened. So that's the night. Early the next morning, they get up very early the next day. Remember when Hashem was coming to give them the Luchot, they were still sleeping. But for Avodah Zarah, they get up early. And they offered sacrifices. They sat down to eat and to drink. And they got up to play. Getting up to play is a euphemism for... Uh, uh, sexual immorality. Really, the whole idea now was to throw off all Mahut Shamayim in some way and to not have the responsibilities that the Torah gave them and to be able to do what they want. So, the goal of this class is to try to understand the behavior of Aaron, of Aaron, how how it relates to him, how he, he was challenged, how he handled the challenge, was he right, was he wrong? And then the whole idea of how his actions affect the Gilgul, the reincarnation, he was a reincarnation of Haran, we're going to explain that, Haran was the brother of, Adon, of, of Abraham, and we're going to try to see how to understand that. And as we understand that, we're going to start to see and have a peak how Hashem brings everything together so perfectly. And it intends, when you see things that don't make sense, and all of a sudden you see Hashem bringing them together so perfectly, it sort of brings us comfort that when we look at things in our own life that are driving us crazy, that we don't understand how they're happening, that seem to make no sense, that Hashem is totally in control, and Hashem's going to bring everything together perfectly. Hashem is totally in control. He's not doing to us. He's doing for us. He's not doing to us. He's doing for us. It's an unbelievable difference in a word. Someone said, why is Hashem doing this to me? And someone else, I was standing there, he answered back, Hashem is not doing it to you. He's doing it for you. You just don't understand yet. So let's look at the halachot of Rambam, of Maimonides, from Yisodeh HaTorah. I'm going to read from inside. He says, What is the source that idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder should not be committed even to save a life? So there are three cardinal sins that we have. These three cardinal sins, one is required to give their life before they commit any of these sins. They are idolatry, sexual immorality, and murder. And he brings a source for each one. He says, your soul, all of your soul means even the cost of your soul. This is idolatry. He says, murder, to save a third party or to save oneself from another. He says, it's logical that you can't, you, your life is not worth more than someone else's. And he brings regarding sexual immorality and he quotes again from the Torah. So the question we have to have here, if it's very clear that one of the cardinal sins is avodah zarah, idolatry, Aaron was subject to the question, Aaron, build us a calf, do avodah zarah, or say, kill me. How is it possible that Aaron says, no, I'm going to do it? How come Aaron didn't say, 
kill me. The next question is, why would Hashem subject Aharon to such a devastating ordeal of making the Egel? Why is Aharon subject to this difficult, difficult test? It's quite obvious we can't accept this whole story at face value. We can't say that Aharon failed at the test. Because even though it seems Hashem, you know, the people come, build us an idol, and he says, okay, instead of saying, kill me. So if he says, okay, instead of saying, kill me, he seems to have failed. But he obviously doesn't fail. Because Hashem demonstrates his confidence in Aharon. He chooses him to be the Kohen Gadol. He chooses him to perform the, the Avodah, the, the work of Yom Kippur. He chooses him to be the one to go into the Kodesh HaKodashim. So obviously it seems he passed whatever test was given to him, even though we don't see it in passing. <coughs> the Tanakh in Divrei HaYamim says, the sons of Amram, Aharon and Moshe, and then it goes and says, and Aharon was set apart to sanctify, to, be, to sanctify him as holy of holies. Aharon himself is called Kodesh HaKodashim. Him and his descendants forever. So here we see that Aharon is special. Aharon must have passed whatever test was given to him. But how did he pass the test? By building an Egel. With the Pisukim we read in mind, let's see how Rabbeinu Ha'ari, as explained by Rabbi Pinchas Friedman, provides us with a glimpse into the wondrous ways of Hashem. We've talked about it almost every week. Hashem reincarnates neshamot, He reincarnates souls in order to rectify them. And the purpose is so that no neshama is ever going to be cast away. Hashem is constantly giving us another chance and another chance. And He gives us a chance and a chance and a chance in our life. And if even there we don't succeed, He gives us a chance in the next life and then the next. So in order to understand what's going on with Aharon now, we have to take a step back, go to the very beginning of the book of Bereshit, in between the perashah of Noah, of the flood, and of the, uh, of the, uh, the tower. And before we begin Lech Lecha and we, we start the journey with Avraham, we have a pasuk there that tells us, Vayamot haran al terach aviv be'eretz moladeto be'ur kastim. Haran died in front of Terach, his father. Terach was the father of Avraham, so Haran is Avraham's brother. Be'eretz moladeto, in the land of his birth, Be'ur Kastim, in the place called Ur Kastim, in Bavel. We're all familiar with the Midrash. Avraham's father, Terach, was probably the chief astrologer and a sort of high priest to Nimrod. We know he understood the astrological and spiritual forces in the world and how they impact our life down below. We see Avraham Avinu was the one who wrote Sefer Yetzirah. His father was a very, very high level and he understood how to manipulate the system. We all know the story of Avraham as destroying the idols of his father. In the story we say it's a joke, the idols can't do anything. But according to Ramban, according to Nachmanides, these idols have power. And the story that I tell, the example that I give, is the example of the waiter in the restaurant. 
The waiter works in the restaurant. He doesn't own the restaurant. There's an owner of the restaurant. The owner is the one who pays all the bills. The owner is the one who pays for all the food. The owner is the one who's really in charge. But if you walk into the restaurant and you see the waiter and you hand him a $100 bill, then the waiter is going to take care of you. So you sit down at the table, you handed the waiter a $100 bill before you start. He knows he's going to get his tip because he knows you as a good customer. And what does he do? He brings you a couple of drinks. And he says, they're on the house. And then he brings you some appetizers. And he says, hey, they're on the house. And he asks you, what do you want for your main? So you order your main. And he brings you some more things. And after he takes your main, he brings you desserts. And he says, on the house. And he keeps giving you things on the house. You get your bill at the end. All you pay for is two mains. You didn't pay for the drinks. You didn't pay for the appetizers. You didn't pay for the extra appetizers. You didn't pay for all the sides. You didn't pay for the dessert. All of that the waiter took care of because you tipped the waiter. In essence, this is what Avodah Zarah is. The waiter doesn't own the establishment. Avodah Zarah is going to the angel that Hashem put as the waiter. And Hashem created a system that if there's a reality of Hashem, and there was a reality of Hashem in the times especially of the Mikdash, so there has to be a 50-50 challenge for the dark side. So if you understood how to pay off the waiter, how to pay off the angel, then you understood how to get things, so to say, for free. So this was Avodah Zarah, and this is where Terach was an expert. Abraham comes and says, Dad, there's not that system. You're going around the wrong way. You gotta go the way, the correct way. There's a Hashem who's in charge, who's the Baal Habayit, who's in charge of all of these forces. And that's the correct way not to go through the waiter. So what happens? He's fighting with his father that this is the system. And don't do the system that you're doing. Terach says, this guy is a rebellious child. Rebellious child. And what does he do? He turns his own son over to Nimrod. Nimrod turns to Abraham and says to Abraham, Abraham, come. Don't be foolish. Let's go together. Let's worship the fire. They worship the fire in Ur Chasdim. And Abraham said to him, Nimrod, how do we worship the fire if the water can come and put out the fire? So Nimrod says to Abraham, Abraham, come, let's worship the water then together. And so what happens? Abraham says to him, but the water is carried by the clouds, Nimrod. Shouldn't we worship the clouds? So Nimrod says, okay, Abraham, let's worship the clouds. And Abraham says, but Nimrod, the clouds are driven by the wind. Shouldn't we worship the, the forces of the wind? And Nimrod says, good, let's worship together the forces of the wind. And he says, but isn't man capable of withstanding the wind? He said, shouldn't we then worship man who withstands the wind? Nimrod said to him, you're just playing a game with words. And he said to him, either you worship the fire with me, or I throw you in it. And Abraham said, I refuse to worship the fire. If you must kill me, kill me. And Nimrod throws him into the fire of ur the furnace of ur The Midrash tells us he spent three days inside the fire. They could see he was alive in the fire. They could see the fire wasn't having an effect on him. 
And after three days, he comes out of the fire. Standing there, watching the situation, was his brother. His brother's name was Haran. And Nimrod says to Haran, Okay, Haran, what do you want to do? Are you with Avraham or are you with me? Are you going to go into the fire or are you going to worship the fire? And Haran says, I'm just like Abraham. I'm a follower of Abraham. So they threw him into the fire and his insides were burned and he died. And the Pasuk says he died before his father Terach. And that's the Pasuk. It says, poor guy, Haran. Avraham goes into the fire, he survives after the days, and he comes out of the fire. What happens to Haran? He goes into the fire and he dies. He dies. So the Midrash has to explain, why would Haran die? It says that Haran said to himself, the Midrash tells us what was he thinking. He said, while Avraham was thrown into the fire, if Avraham survives, then I'll go in. If he doesn't survive, then I won't. So he said, I'll follow whoever wins. Because his faith was very weak, he dies. But the fact is, he dies. He dies al-Kiddush Hashem. Nobody knew what he was thinking. Rabbeinu Ha'ari teaches us that Aaron HaKohen was in fact a Gilgul of Haran, the brother of Avraham Avinu. Aharon, Haran. Haran sacrificed his life in Ur Kasdim in order to sanctify the name of Hashem. But because his intent wasn't sincere, it possessed an element of what we call Lo Lishma, not for the sake of heaven. Lo Lishma, not for the sake of the name. It says, and in some way, it was tainted. So he dies in the fire, Al Kiddush Hashem. But his death is tainted because he didn't have perfect faith. According to Rabbeinu Hari, this is precisely the reason that Haran subsequently reincarnates into Haron HaKohen to rectify this shortcoming. In Sha'ar HaGilgulim in Kitve Hari, it says, The name Aharon contains four letters, Aleph, Hey, Resh, Nun. Three of the letters, Hey, Resh, Nun, are the name Haran. Aharon and Haran are exactly the same, with the exception that Aharon has an Aleph added to the beginning of the name. Says Rabbeinu Hari, Haran came to make amends for the sin of Adam Harishon. Says that Adam Harishon worshipped Avodah Zarah. And what happened is Haran came back to fix the worship of, of Avodah Zarah of Adam HaRishon. We have to understand what it's talking about. Not only does Haran not make amends, but he shows a lack of faith in Hashem because until Abraham came out of the furnace, he wasn't going in. Haran was subsequently incinerated in Ur Kasdim and he was reincarnated in Aharon to make amends for this sin of Avodah Zarah. How does Aharon fix the sin of Avodah Zarah? Regarding the contention that Haran was obligated to make amends for Adam HaRishon, what 
Abu Dazara are we talking about with regard to Adam Harishon? Where does he commit Abu Dazara? The rabbis tell us, tell us that in the sin of the chet of the chet of the etzadat of the tree of knowledge, the, the Nachash said to Abraham, to Adam and Chava, Hashem knows on the day you eat, your eyes will be open, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. Rashi explains that that what did he see? That Hashem is in some way going to be jealous of him. That Hashem is going to be competition with Adam. Says Rashi, there's no greater blasphemy than that, than believing the lies of the Nachash. Therefore, he says, Adam Harishon is guilty of Avodah Zarah. Comes Haran to fix the Avodah Zarah. How? By going into the fire of Ur Kasdim. But because his intent wasn't proper, Aharon has to come back and fix the Avodah Zarah of Haran. This is the basis of the Arizal's contention that as a Gilgul of Adam Harishon, Haran was required to sacrifice his life for the sake of Kedush Hashem. But like we said, his act wasn't completely the Shem Shamayim. Since he didn't choose to enter the furnace until he saw Abraham emerge, he assumed that he would also emerge unharmed. Therefore, he dies and he's reincarnated into Aaron Kohen to fix that sin. This is alluded to by the name Aharon, which is the same name as Haran, with the Aleph added to it. So the question we have to see is, how exactly did Aharon make amends for Haran's defective act of self-sacrifice? Remember, Aharon doesn't, doesn't die. He doesn't have a self-sacrifice. He doesn't stand up like he doesn't stand up like Khor and say, No, I'm not gonna do it. He doesn't get killed. So where is the comparison between Haran and Aharon? And go further, Aharon actually makes an egil. So if anyone's guilty of Avodazara, it's Aharon who makes an egil and the people start to worship and dance and do everything else around it. So how are we saying that Aharon is doing a kitikun when in fact it appears he's doing the opposite? From the words of the Arizal also, it's apparent that this letter Aleph, the Aleph of Aharon, which is the difference between Aharon and Haran, has tremendous significance. We have to understand how the Aleph plays in, and we have to understand that the, the role of the Aleph in separating Aharon from Haran. We review the Pesukim. Aharon saw and he built a Mizbeach. Aharon called out and said, Chag Machar. Tomorrow we're going to have a holiday. So we said that he saw that Hur, his nephew, was rebuking the people. Hur got up. They came to Hur and they said, Build us a, an idol. And Hur said, What are you, nuts? No way. I'm not going to do it, people. Chill. Nothing. Doing. Stop. What did they do? They killed Hur. We said, Vayiven. He understood, Mizevach, from the slaughter, Lefanav, in front of him, from the slaughter of Hur in front of him. He says, Zevuach. He, uh, he, uh, he uh, gives the vowels. He understood from the slaughtering in front of him that, that 
he, there's a problem here. And what does he say? He says, better that the sin is attributed to me and not to B'nai Israel. This is the, the, the main thing that Aharon does. Aharon HaKohen chose to make the Egel for the people rather than sacrificing his life for Kiddushat, for, for Kiddushat Hashem. He doesn't sacrifice himself. He agrees to go along with the people. He agrees to make the golden calf. He doesn't sacrifice himself. He already witnessed the murder of Hur. He saw that Hur refused the rabble's request. He saw he refused to make the Egel. And Aharon figured that if B'nai Israel kill him as well, there would be no hope of saving them or remedying their transgression or doing anything. The Gemaran Sanhedrin tells us he saw Hur slaughtered before him. He figured, if I don't do as they wish, they're going to do to me what they did to Hur. And what's going to happen? They're going to fulfill through me the words of the Pasuk that we see in Echa. Im yaharog b'mikdash Hashem kohen v'navi. Says that if on the same day they will kill the, the kohen and the navi, there's going to be no hope for B'nai Israel. So what does he say? He says, if I allow them to kill me as well as killing Khur, then what am I doing? I'm going to sentence them to an unforgivable fate. They're done with. So he says, if I, if I let them kill me and they do the calf, then it's over for them. It's better that I make the calf and by me making the calf, I can try, delay till Moshe comes, delay tomorrow till Moshe comes, don't do this, don't do that. And even if they worship the calf, they'll have a remedy to do teshuvah that will not come to them if they murder me. So what happens is this. Aharon himself is accepting upon himself the blame for making the Egel in order to save B'nai Israel from extermination. He's accepting all the responsibility, which means I accept it. I accept that Hashem has to kill me here and kill me in the future world. All of this I'm willing to do in order for B'nai Israel not to be destroyed. Because he was so willing to give up of himself, Hashem chose him to be the Kohen Gadol, to represent B'nai Israel, to beg for forgiveness for B'nai Israel on Yom Kippur, and to go into the Kodesh HaKodeshim. Hashem says to Aaron, for loving righteousness and attempting to vindicate my children, not wishing to hold them accountable, therefore Hashem has anointed you. He said to him, for the entire tribe of Levi, only you will be chosen as the Kohen Gadol. We have to realize that Aharon was indeed ready and willing to die for the sake of Kiddush Hashem. He was ready to be slain. But he didn't do so, not to save his life, but in order to save B'nai Israel from annihilation, even though it meant making the Egel. He understood if they murdered him by refusing to make the Egel as they did to Hur, there would be no tikkun for them. Therefore, he concluded 
it's better to make the Egel and I should be held personally responsible for this unholy deed. As for B'nai Yisrael, they'll be able to achieve Teshuvah. They'll be able to achieve forgiveness in some way. The Chatam Moshe and Torah Moshe explains the concept of Mesirut Nefesh we call, we say Mesirut Nefesh means sacrificing one's spiritual self, giving over my soul. In other words, one has to be willing not to give over his life, but to give over his soul and his portion in Olam Haba. If a person is only sacrificing his physical body in Olam Hazeh, he says it wouldn't be termed Mesirut Nefesh, it would be called Mesirut Guf, giving over the body, not giving over the soul. He explains that this is the true meaning of Mesirut Nefesh. If we merely sacrifice our lives for the honor of Hashem, we didn't sacrifice our souls, but only our bodies. So now the Khatam Sofer asks, the prohibition against Avodazara falls into the category where we are required, as we said, to be killed rather than transgress. How did Aharon conclude that it was better to transgress this Avera? How could he do that? Even more surprising, in the aftermath that is that of the Egel, he's appointed Gohen Gadol. He asks, how does he merit that? The Khatam Sofer then goes to quote the Gemara in Sanhedrin. He tells us that when David HaMelech's son of Shalom rebelled against him. So remember, David is the king. His son of Shalom decides he's going to be the king instead of his father. He has a rebellion. He has many of the people on his side. And he literally has his troops going to kill King David. King David is running for his life. And the Gemara tells us that David HaMelech sought to worship Avodah He went to go worship idols. And the question is, why would David HaMelech go to worship idols when his son is chasing him to kill him? And he turns to Hushai and he says to him, he says to him, he said to David, people are going to say, can, can the king as great as David worship Avodazara? And David HaMelech says, people will say, if I worship Avodazara, that that's why I was punished by Hashem, by having my own son kill me. But if I don't do anything, then people are going to say that God is unjust. I would rather them look at me as worthless and as a sinner and therefore I'm punished rather than, than them say Hashem is not just and Hashem is to blame. David HaMelech is ready to sacrifice his life, not only his life, but his soul, forfeiting his portion in this world and also in Olam Haba to avoid publicly desecrating the name of Hashem. Because people would say, Hashem loves this guy David and that's what he does to him. Can't be just Hashem. So David says, I'll worship Avodah Zarah to save Hashem from being desecrated. Now let's go back to Ur Kastim. Haran, the brother of Avraham. What was his shortcoming? He witnesses his brother Avraham. He goes into the fire. He's ready to sacrifice himself for Chidush Hashem. He doesn't think he's going to survive. He thinks he's going in the fire and I'm done, baby. He says, and he emerges from the fire totally, totally without a scratch or burn. 
He sanctifies the name of Hashem publicly in a manner that was never done before. Not only was he willing to sacrifice his life to sanctify Hashem's name, but in addition, Hashem rescued him in the supernatural way that Hashem's name would be known throughout the world and this whole miraculous thing would be recorded for everyone. It says that Abraham was going to become so famous that he was the one who was thrown into the furnace of Nimrod and he survived. His brother Harad sees Abraham survives. He says, you know what? I want to be famous too. I want to be the guy who survives the fire. If Abraham, my brother, is going to survive, then I'm going to go in because I know I'll be just like him. But because his intention wasn't L'Shem Shamayim, his intention was what? Fame and fortune. It was flawed. And he dies. He dies, but it's perceived that he dies. Al-Kidushat Hashem. He died for the sake of heaven. He says that the problem is, had Abraham died in the furnace, then Haran, we know from the Midrash, would have said, no way, I'm not going in. It was not Lishma. It was not Lishma at all. This is exactly what's the story which is happening with Aaron HaKohen. Initially, B'nai Israel approached Hur, his nephew. They request that Hur make the golden calf. Hur was willing to sacrifice his life for the sake of Kiddushat Hashem. He refuses to make the Egel. He's murdered. And thus Hur becomes known throughout the generations as a person who sacrificed his life for the sake of Kiddushat Hashem. Then they approach Aaron, Hashem Sadiq, the same request. He too is willing to give up his life by refusing to make the Egel. But what does he do? He assesses the situation. He realizes that the consequences of his self-sacrifice would be a total calamity. Yes, his name would be recorded for all eternity among the holy and pure Sadiqim who gave their life for Kiddush Hashem. Yet not only would he not be able to prevent B'nai Israel from doing the Avodah Zarah and making the Egel, but his death would be a fulfillment of the Pasuk, Im Yarog B'Mikdash Hashem Kohen V'Navi, should your Kohen and Navi be killed in the sanctuary. As a consequence, there would be no tikkun for them. Furthermore, there would be a greater Chilul Hashem because Hashem's chosen people would have no tikkun and Hashem would have to destroy them. Therefore, what does he do? He decides to sacrifice not his life in that way, but his soul, as the Khatam Sofer says. He's prepared to sacrifice his portion in both worlds in making the Egel and in preventing them from killing him. His main objective was to save B'nai Israel and give them a tikkun for the Chet Egel. This is what he meant when he said, it's preferable that I be held accountable for this act and not B'nai Israel. He's saying it's preferable that I give up my portion in this world and the next world and avoid the extermination of B'nai Israel. Thus we could appreciate how Aaron's act of self-sacrifice rectifies Haran's defective act of self-sacrifice in his prior incarnation. Haran is defective. Even though he dies, there's a defect in the death. 
As opposed to Aaron, he sacrifices his life merely to be famous, merely to be like his brother. Aaron refused to sacrifice his life and be like Hor, even though that would have made him famous. Instead, he chooses to sacrifice his soul in a more exalted manner. He chooses to forfeit his olam haba. He, he chooses to forfeit his olam hazeh. All of this in order to save B'nai Israel, the chosen people, from annihilation. In this manner, he fixes Haran's neshama that reincarnated into him, and that's for his act of misidut nefesh. Now we're going to try to understand the matter of the Aleph that was added to the name Haran when he becomes Aharon. We learn in the Gemara, Barhehe asks Hillel a question. He quotes a pasuk in Malachi, which appears to be redundant. The pasuk in Malachi mentions the difference between a righteous person and a wicked person, and between one who serves Hashem and one who does not. So there's a difference between a righteous and a wicked, one who serves Hashem, one who doesn't. But the question we have to ask, isn't a Sadiq the one who serves Hashem, and isn't the wicked person the one who doesn't? So Hillel answers the question, that one who serves Hashem and one who does not may both be completely righteous. Nevertheless, there is no comparison between the person who reviews his studies 100 times and the one who reviews his studies 101 times. Moses, you have a final tomorrow, you study? All of the commentaries struggle to explain this astonishing statement. Why is someone who only reviewed his studies 100 times classified as a person who didn't serve Hashem, while the one who studies and he reviews his studies 101 times is classified as Oved Elohim? The difference between someone who studies 100 times and 101 is the difference between a Sadiq and a Rasha. How do we understand this? In order to understand this, we have to see Sefer Toldot Yaakov Yosef. He quotes the Baal Shem Tov. He says, when it says, Shone he says, when it says a person learns his Perek a hundred times, it implies that the person has viewing his learning 100 times. He says, however, he's lacking the Echad. His learning lacks the proper intent. What does the Echad refer to? The Echad is not simply a hundred to a hundred and one. He says he's learning for the sake of the Echad. He's devoting his learning for the sake of the Echad. And who is the Echad? Hashem. He says someone who learns a hundred and one times, he's learning a hundred for the sake of the Echad, for the one. The Echad adding to it means he's learning for the sake of heaven. We learn in the Gemara and Shabbat regarding the letters Aleph Bet. We say Aleph Bet, Aluf Bina. Study Bina, learn insight by studying the Torah. Tying this to what we're talking about, we could suggest that Aluf Bina implies that a person requires Bina. He requires insight to recognize that it's imperative to learn the Torah with the proper intent for the sake of the Aleph the Aleph of the world, who is Hashem. In Pirkei Avod, it says something very scary. I remember I said when I learned this when I was six years old with uh, 
Rabbi Shirazi, he told us, Rabbi Meir says that anyone who forgets even a single item of his Torah learning is considered guilty of death. Why would you tell a six-year-old kid this? If you forget anything you learned, you're guilty of death. It's incredulous to think that one who forgets just one item of his study is guilty of death. But we can understand what does this mean? It means that the person who forgets echad, he forgets why am I learning? I'm learning for the sake of shamayim. I'm learning with Hashem in mind. If he forgets that he's learning lishma for a reason, for a purpose, for a heavenly purpose, then everything's worthless. We go back to the Baal Shem Tov. We can understand that one who learns 100 times plus one, he says he's learning for the sake of heaven. Otherwise, he's learning a hundred for himself. It's worthless. This is the significance of the letter Aleph that's added to the name Aharon from Haran. While Haran sacrificed his life, his intent was not Lashem Shamayim. He says, therefore, he lacked the letter Aleph. Aharon, on the other hand, was willing to sacrifice his life and forfeit his portion in both worlds. Why? L'shem Shamayim. For the sake of the kavod of Shamayim. In order to save B'nai Israel from extermination. And in this manner, what does Aharon do? He rectifies the neshama of Haran by adding the Aleph. Haran, you have to do it L'shem Shamayim. Therefore, he transforms the name Haran into Aharon. Because all the actions of Aharon were L'shem Shamayim. He epitomized this idea of Me'ap Hamim Ve'echad. One hundred and one, because everything was the, for the sake of the one. It's a beautiful thought expressed by Rab Zushya. He addresses the, a difficulty in the Gemara. Rab Pinchas Ben Yair explains to Rab Akadosh his rationale for not wanting to benefit from other human beings. He says that there's a person who wants to share, but lacks sufficient resources. Then there's the person who has sufficient resources, but doesn't want to share. So we have two people. We have a wealthy man who can give, who doesn't want to give, and we have a poor man who can't give, who doesn't have the money, but he wants to give. So Tosfot asks the question, if the latter person, if the wealthy man, possesses the resources to share, and he does so with others, but doesn't wish to do, why is he considered holy? The answer is that in reality, he doesn't want to share. Nevertheless, he shares. Why does he share? Even though he doesn't want to, out of shame, out of honor, he's willing to give. We all see in shul. You stay in shul in the high holidays. Because that guy give, okay, you got to give. So even though he gives, he really doesn't want to give. He's not giving l'shem shamayim. He's giving just because he wants everyone to see that he gave. But if it's only out of shame or honor, how do we call this guy holy? Because he's still giving. Rav Zushi explains, it's known that every time we do a mitzvah, we create a malach. We create an angel. He says that this angel is a spiritual creature. Nevertheless, it has a spiritual side and a physical side. Just like there's a body and a neshama. The angel has a body, so to say, and a soul. The body of the malach is generated by the actual performance of the mitzvah. 
while the proper intent to perform the mitzvah generates the neshama of the malach. How does it work? It turns out that a person who has the sufficient funds, but's reluctant to give tzedakah, yet he gives anyway out of shame, he generates the body of a malach because he did the actual act, even though he wasn't really willing to do it. Seeing he didn't perform the mitzvah l'shem shamayim, the neshama of the malach is lacking. So what do we have? We have another person. He wishes he could give, but he doesn't have the money. His desire to give, even though he can't perform the mitzvah, generates the neshama of the malach. Because he has this intent to do it l'shem shamayim. Seeing he's unable to actually perform the mitzvah, what happens? He can't create the body, but he could create the soul. So how does Hashem remedy the situation? In Hashem's chesed, in Hashem's kindness, in Hashem's rachamim, what does He do? He combines the first person's deed with the second person's intent. He creates a partnership. And together, they form a complete holy malach containing both a body and a neshama. We find this idea expressed by his brother, by Rabbi Elimelech of Lezhinsk. He says in Noam Elimelech that our sages say in the Gemara Pesuchim, Pesachim that a person should always engage of the study and performance of the mitzvot even though his actions are not purely motivated. Not lishma. So we should still do mitzvot and learn Torah even lo lishma. Because eventually, if we do it lo lishma, we will come to do it lishma. He says, in other words, we, we almost think of this, we say, oh, you tell a kid to do it, give him a bribe, give him a bribe. If he does it lo lishma, eventually he'll come and do it for the right reasons. That's as simple. He says, no, that's not what this means. He says, Hashem takes the Torah and mitzvot that were learned and performed lo lishma, and brings them to the tzaddik who has intentions lishma. And it purifies and completes the Torah and mitzvot that were not lishma. So you have a guy learning and giving lo lishma, but Hashem comes and brings him a partner, and the lo lishma eventually becomes lishma. This is Hashem bringing machshava tova, matzirifah, he mixes together, he brings together to ma'aseh. He combines a proper thought with an actual deed. Hashem is taking two partners, bringing them together, so that together the mitzvah can be completed correctly and whole. We learn from this wonderful explanation that seeing as the mitzvah is completed and perfected only on account of the intent of the other, he receives credit for the entire mitzvah. You see that the two partners now could both be considered as doing the mitzvah. Now we can understand how Aharon rectifies the neshama of Haran. He says, what happens? Haran's neshama is reincarnated into Aharon. Haran performs the mitzvah, he performs the good deed. He sacrifices his life, Al-Kidush Hashem. But he lacked the proper intent. He only sacrificed his life to be like Abraham. He assumed he would be saved and he assumed he would be famous. Aharon comes, who's Haran's Gilgul. And the opposite is true. His thoughts and intent were completely good. He wished to sanctify the name of heaven in order to save Bnei Israel from annihilation. The act he performed, the making of the Egel, was lacking 
So what happens? Hashem combines, He intervenes the good thoughts with the action. He combines Aharon's good intent, which was Lishma, with Haran's good deed, that he died in the fire, Al-Kidush Hashem, and together the Tikkun was accomplished with the credit and reward going to Aharon for being Metaken, for fixing Haran. In fact, this provides us with a novel interpretation of mitoch shelo lishma balishma. You start out without lishma, Hashem will combine it to eventually bring it to lishma. In all this, we can begin to understand how Hashem makes the statement of kol Yisrael arevim zelazer. All of Bnei Yisrael are mixed, are responsible for one for the other. Hashem brings our half acts together to form full acts. And in His mercy, He allows us in one life to complete the half act begun in a previous life. We can now better understand the reasoning explained around Haran and his act. The tikkun of Aharon on Haran and the meaning of the letter Aleph added to his name. It's really a lesson to us that there's times that we can only do and maybe we don't have the right intent. And there's times that we can't do, but we have the desire and the intent. We should know that we should do whatever we can. We should do our best to always have the Aleph in mind, that it should be Leshem Shamayim. But we have to know that Hashem is putting everything together. He's mixing things, He's bringing us together with people. We have to see in everything that happens in each day, in different conversations that we have with different people for whatever reasons. Sometimes there's going to be an argument and because there's an argument, you pick up the phone and you call somebody. And you have a conversation with that person. Something happened late last night with me. And someone was involved with someone and I ended up speaking to someone and trying to resolve it. And in trying to resolve it, I realized that this person I'm having a conversation with could be a tremendous, tremendous help in the future. And I called the person back because I thought about it all night and I said to him, I said, you know, I have no idea why we needed to speak last night. But I know it wasn't because of the conversation we had. It was so that the two of us could connect. And he said, I have to tell you, I felt the same way after I hung up the phone. And I spoke to him, he emailed me at five o'clock in the morning. I spoke to him early this morning. I said, Hashem puts us in situations in order to connect into other situations. Hashem is always fixing everything, always bringing everything together. Hashem is in charge. We don't have to worry. I, I said I had a situation a few weeks ago. We had so many of us working on this and we were all working on this situation and we were putting in hours and hours and time and time and people and conversations and pressing people we know. And we were literally like people who were sitting there driving uh, the, the, the cars in Nellie Bly, the, the cars that go in the rides, and we're sitting there and we're all turning our wheels and we're all pressing the gas and hitting the brake and we're ringing the bell and we think we're doing all of this work. Meanwhile, the car is going round and round in a circle and there's a man who's lifting the button and saying, ride's over, ride's beginning. We're on the rides. A lot of times we're doing the effort. We have to do our hishtadlut. But we have to realize that Hashem is in charge. Hashem is making sure that everything fits together, that everything works together, that everything runs smoothly. We have to do our part. We should always keep the Aleph in front of us. We should always remember to do what we're doing, Lashem Shamayim. But we should always remember that Hashem is in charge of everything that's happening. And Hashem is not doing to us, Hashem is doing for us.
Thank you all for joining us. Bezrat Hashem will look forward to next week.